Our scripture today comes from James 3, 13 through 18 and 4, 3 through 6 and 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Love does not envy. This is God's word. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Jonathan Winfrey, as Josh prayed, one of our other pastors, is on vacation this week. So do pray for he and his family. Uh, and that they would have a good time and come home safely. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here. This feels like the very, very middle of summer, so kids, I'm afraid to tell you, it feels like we're turning a corner back towards the start of school. For some reason, this weekend feels that way to me for some reason. Uh, but good to see many of you. I know some of you travel from out of town to get back. Uh, can I tell you, as your pastor, that just encourages me to know uh, that, that it's important. you feel it's important to be here uh, because... If I feel like I'm the only one that has to be here, that gets a little discouraging sometimes. You know, so good. So thank you. Um, We are in the middle of a series that's going to go throughout the rest of the summer on what we're calling the attributes of love out of 1 Corinthians 13. This past spring, we looked at the the book, the the entire letter of 1 Corinthians from beginning to end, but we're really focusing in on chapter 13 and looking at all the different things Paul says there uh, that he, he uses these different attributes to describe love. Love is patient. Love is kind, and we're just working our way through these. And this morning we come to uh, this phrase, and we're going to meditate on just this one thing this morning. Paul says, love does not envy. Uh, if you, if, I want you to, to call your attention to the call of worship back at the beginning of the worship folder. In Romans 12, verse 15, Paul, the apostle, writing to the Roman Christians, just makes this brief statement. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's a command. And it's always struck me as a radical one. It's almost impossible to obey. To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I don't know anybody who does that consistently. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to problem solve how to be obedient to that command. Because the problem with our struggle to be obedient to that simple command of Paul that when others are celebrating, we should be celebrating too. And when they're weeping... We should be weeping to you because our hearts are so tied to their hearts. The struggle to be obedient is this problem of envy. Now think about this. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Okay, So in the history of the church, 
when the church began to talk about the deadly sins, I don't know, you know, I didn't know there was any other kind of sin other than deadly sin, but I assume there's some that are more deadly than others. And when the church thought, boiled it down and thought, okay, the really, really big ones, right, it came up with seven, and envy was one of the top seven. Okay, this would make sense because for God, it's one of the top ten. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet your neighbor's wife, do not desire your neighbor's house. So it's in God's top ten. It's in the church's top seven. So I wonder, is it in your top ten? Because I'll be honest with you, I don't find a lot of people who come to me and want to talk with me about their problem with envy. Nobody looks at their life and thinks, envy, that's the thing that's going to take me out. It's never that. It's always something else. And yet we see it must be a big deal. It's in God's top ten. It's in the church's top seven. But for most of us, it's not even on the radar of our life. And that's a problem. So here's what I want to do. I want to see three things that this passage in James teaches us about envy. I want, to, I want you to see, and we'll just, these are the three points of the sermon outline that I've given to you in your worship folder. I want you to see, and let's just define it. What is it? What is envy? Secondly, where does it come from? And thirdly, how can we go to battle against it? Those three things. What is envy? Let's just define it. Let's ask where does it come from? What's the source? What's the root of it in our, in our hearts? You know, how does it get a hold of us and begin to, you know, work its way out into our life? And then lastly, how can we be healed of it? How can we go to war against it? Because ultimately, that's what we have to do. We have to go to war or it'll destroy our lives, okay? So first, let's just start with this idea. What, what is envy? Let's define this word, okay? The word itself, in 1 Corinthians thirteen four, there, love does not envy, comes from the Greek word that means to be zealous. It's translated in a lot of different places, a lot of different ways, Let me give you a few. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as to envy or to covet or to be jealous for or to be enthusiastic for or full of zeal or concern about something. So it means to be full of desire and longing for something, which in itself can be a very good thing. So in Acts 22, Paul describes himself as being zealous for God. Same word. Okay? In Titus 2, Paul writes that we, as a result of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that that we should be a people who are eager, or depends on the translation, zealous for good works. So it's possible to be be zealous and eager and, and desiring God. It's possible to desire and to be eager and to be zealous for good works. But the sin of envy, which is what we have to talk about this morning, is the desire or to be zealous for what belongs to somebody else. It's wanting somebody else's life. James describes it in our passage, look there, twice, verse 14 and verse 16, as jealousy coupled with selfish ambition. So he writes, if you have jealousy, excuse me, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder in every vile practice so james has some pretty strong things to say here about this right he's describing a situation where there's jealousy but it's not benign it's soured and it's become hostility and there's all these people that are fighting with one another that's what that word selfish ambition that's what that means 
So envy then, as James describes it, is not simply just wanting somebody else's life. It's begrudging others their lives. It's not just looking at somebody else and wanting what they have. What happens is it begins to work in the heart and ultimately we come to hate them because they have something that we want. Or you hate yourself because they have it and you don't. And so what, I'm really, what I really want you to see here and what I think James is laboring to help us understand about this, this problem with envy is that it always creates hostility, though often that hostility is inward and hidden. And that's why Paul says love doesn't envy. Because you see, envy and love are, are not compatible with one another because envy hates the other person for what they have. Envy leads to hate. You can't love and envy at the same time because envy always tends towards hostility and hate. And so Aristotle's definition of envy, which just puts me on the floor. He said it really simply. He said, envy is pain caused by the good fortune of others. He said, it's not, it's not just that I see somebody else and want what they have. I see them and it hurts. And because it hurts, then I hate them for it. I mean, you can imagine a million scenarios, can't you, of how this works out? The friend that you have at work gets the job promotion that you think you deserve or that you wanted, or a friend gets invited to a party that you don't get invited to, or things just generally go well for whoever it is. Their kids are well-behaved or better behaved than mine, or they make more money than I do or whatever it might be, and I just, not only do I look at that and think, oh, I wish that I could have that, but I begin to hate it. Worse, I hate them for it. So then what I do is I begin to secretly hope for their demise and plan for it and take the opportunities to say things here and there to try to knock them down a notch or two. It's the exact opposite, see, of what Paul says in Romans 12. Remember what he said there. He said, Christians rejoice when others are rejoicing and weep when they're weeping. And in this letter to the Corinthians, he's made a similar assertion. He says that our lives should be so intertwined, they should be so knit together with one another our hearts so connected to one another that if one of our friends is suffering, then we should feel, I mean, object, like subjectively really feel the pain of their suffering and enter into that with them. But if they're honored or if they're being celebrated or if a friend is rejoicing, then we should be free to rejoice as if the honor they're receiving is actually honor that we're getting ourselves. Love rejoices when people are rejoicing. It weeps when they're weeping, but envy, see, envy comes in and does the opposite. Envy actually, as Josh said already, envy actually weeps when others rejoice and it rejoices when others weep. Envy sees the other person who's gotten the promotion at work and wishes for that person's downfall. Envy sees the mom whose kids behave perfectly and relishes that those children's disobedience. Ah, see, they are sinners. Right? Envy rejoices at the expense of others. It rejoices when others weep. It rejoices at the failures and the losses of others. It, think, envy loves the bad news coming out of other people's lives because it feels like affirmation. Isn't that gross? Jonathan Edwards who you know we've, been, we've kind of been following along in his book, Charity and Its Fruit. And I've heard many of you, you've told me you're reading, and I've seen people even post things on, online. It's so cool. I love that because he says it better than I could ever possibly say it. Here's the way he put it. He said, it is the natural 
disposition in men. That they love to be uppermost. And this disposition is directly crossed if they see others above them. It is from this spirit that men dislike and are opposed to the prosperity of others because they think it makes those who possess it superior in some respect to themselves. For as men commonly are, they cannot bear a rival much, if any, better than a superior, for they love to be singular and alone in their eminence and advancement. Envy is being hurt when others are successful or honored. And what's hurt is our pride, our ego. We can't stand the idea of somebody getting ahead of us, of being preeminent to us, of being uppermost or above us in any way. And so we begin to just, we literally feel pained at their success. So envy then is pain caused by the good fortune of of others. It's rejoicing when others weep and weeping when they rejoice. So how do you know then, before we move on to this next point, how do you know if you're full of envy? I mean, how can you trace this out in your life? I feel like I need to help you do this. And I want to just pose three questions to you that I think are really helpful that can really help us, I think, as we try to try to figure out where it is in our lives that envy's kind of grabbed on and is, is wreaking havoc in us, okay? So let me just pose these three questions to you just as a way of diagnostic, okay? Diagnostic questions. Number one, first question, are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Envy is comparisonitis, right? I have an acute case. Anybody else? I guess I'm alone. That's great. That's always a good feeling. Right? Envy's comparisonitis. Do you evaluate yourself in your life on the basis of what you see in others? Do the strengths of others make you feel bad about yourself? Do their weaknesses make you feel good about yourself? Are you constantly comparing yourself to other people? Remember, envy's really about pride. It's rooted in pride. And Paul's going to go on and say, love does not envy. And the next thing he's going to say is it does not boast. So he even connects two together. Remember what C.S. Lewis said about pride. He said pride is essentially competitive. That pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. So the default mode, the default setting of our sinful hearts is pride. And that means that we should just expect that we're going to go through life apart from a supernatural work of God's spirit in our lives, constantly comparing ourselves to others. So are you, do you have comparisonitis? If so, beware of envy. Second question. Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it all about you? Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it all about you? And it's just another way of saying, can you rejoice with those who are rejoicing? Or does their rejoicing cause you to weep? See, envy makes everything about you. And the way you know you've got a problem with envy is if you can't appreciate what somebody else has without connecting it right back to you. In other words, you can't, you can't enjoy the successes of others or the beauty in others without comparing yourself to them, right? So you can't, you can't celebrate their success without it quickly becoming about your failure. You can't admire their beauty without it making you feel ugly and then getting mired down in your ugliness. It's all about you. You can't enjoy what somebody else has. You can't rejoice with them when they're rejoicing because it makes you weep. It turns you back around and makes it all about you. So do you compare yourself to others? Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it all about you? The third diagnostic question, are you able, and this is probably the most 
helpful and, and striking to me is, is this. Are you able to enjoy what you have without longing for something different or something more? It's probably the saddest thing about envy. Is that what it does is it comes into your life and it begins to destroy your ability to enjoy what you have. And so here's how you know you're shackled to envy. Nothing's ever good enough. Your life's not good enough. Your job's not good enough. Your body's not good enough. Your kid's behavior's not good enough. Your husband or your wife is not good enough. Your friends are not good enough. And what happens is, is you can never just sit down and enjoy the moment. You're never content with what's right in front of you. There's always something wrong. There's always something more you need to be doing. There's always something you need to be working on. Jonathan Edwards, again, in his sermon on envy, says it this way. He says, envy envies the disposition of the devil and partakes in his likeness. So it is the disposition of hell and partakes of its misery. It is a powerful eating cancer preying on the vital parts, offensive and full of corruption, and it is the most foolish kind of self-injury. For the envious make themselves troubled most needlessly, being uncomfortable only because of others' prosperity, when that prosperity does not injure themselves or diminish their enjoyments or blessings whatsoever, but they are not willing to enjoy what they have because, they, because others are enjoying also. So Jonathan Edwards says that envy is the disposition of Satan. It partakes in his likeness, and therefore it's the disposition of hell and partakes in its misery. Think about that for a minute. Satan... If you've been, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, Christians believe that there is real evil and it's personal out there. And and the Bible calls this personal evil Satan, who was number two in all of the universe, the created order underneath God Himself. And yet, what happened is, what the Bible tells us is that Satan's enjoying the glories of heaven, and then the thought enters his mind: "I'm number two, not number one." And envy of God's preeminence made it impossible him to enjoy heaven any longer. And if envy can suck the joy out of heaven, what do you think it's going to do to you? Okay? So that's what it is. Do you compare yourself to others? Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it all about you? Are you able to enjoy what you have without longing for something more, something different? Okay, but secondly, let's talk not only about what envy is, but where does it come from? And we have this question posed to us in the text, verse 1 of chapter 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is all all the trouble James is describing at the end of chapter 3, right? There's no gentleness and civility. The church is full of jealousy and selfish ambition, and it's creating relational chaos. There's fighting, and people are mad at one another, and everybody's at one another's throats, and he asks, what's going on? I mean, why is all this happening? What's, What's behind all this? Where does all this anger and this fighting come from? And his answer is envy. But I want you to see how he explains where envy comes from. Look at verse 2. You desire, and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. So James says that anger and hatred and fighting come from envy. And envy happens when we want things, but we don't have them. But then other people do have them. And this makes us angry and resentful of others. And here's the thing, most of us can understand and identify all of that, but what we miss, the part we're unaware of, is that our anger and our resentment is not really, in the final analysis, directed towards the people who have what we want but we don't have. In truth, we're angry with the one who could give us what we want but has chosen not to. Our beef is with God. 
James says we have all these desires, right? A better house, a better job with better pay or a better marriage or just a better life or whatever it might be. And God's not coming through. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, Luke 15, is really, a, if you think about it, a case study on envy. And if, you don't, if you're not a Christian or you're not aware of the story, Jesus tells the story of a father with two sons, and the youngest son comes to the father and says, Father, give me my inheritance so I can go and spend it. Basically, he says, Father, I, I wish you would just die so I could get the money. I'd really rather have your money than you. And the son goes away, and he's reckless with the money, and he quickly loses it and goes through it all, and then he has to come back home and fall on his face before his father and beg his father's forgiveness. But instead of being stern with him, the father runs out to meet him and throws the robe of his, uh, you know, the, the clothes him in, in the family robe and puts the family ring with the family seal on his finger and brings him home and throws a party and invites the neighborhood and celebrates the fact that his lost son has come home. And then as the story goes on, this boy's older brother, who's very dutiful and always has done the right thing, comes home and sees the party and what's going on, and he gets very, very angry. But who's he mad at? It's not his younger brother. I mean, of course he's, he's angry with his younger brother, but the real source, if you read the parable carefully, the real source of this boy's resentment and anger is not towards his brother. He's mad at his dad. He's hurt by his father's generosity towards his younger brother because he feels like he should be the one being celebrated. And so he, he's envious of the father's love towards his younger brother. And what I want you to see, how, what's it being exposed for us in, in both of these places, James 4 and also in Luke 15 in that parable, is envy comes from unbelief. It's the opposite of contentment, right? You can't just sit down and enjoy what you have. There's always something more. There's something different. There's something better. There's something coming. There's something you've got to reach out there and try to get, right? You can't ever just sit down and look at what you have and say, man, isn't God good? He's so richly blessed me. Because, see, contentment is this ability to be happy with whatever God is doing in your life and whatever he's doing in others' lives because you know that he's wise and he's good. And no matter what he's doing, he's always doing good to you. So I can just sit down and I can be content and I can rest and I can look at my life and I can be grateful and be happy for all the good things that I have. See, envy destroys that because it comes from a place of unbelief. I mean, contentment is quiet satisfaction with your circumstances that is due to having confidence in God and his love for you. But envy springs from a lack of confidence in God's love. I'm not sure God's going to take care of me. I'm not sure I can really trust him to provide for me. And this is where the jealousy and the ambition and all of the things that James is describing up there in chapter 3 come from. The older brother in Jesus' story felt he had been wronged by his father. And that was the spring from which his envy flowed. Right? God is stingy. He doesn't love me. He's holding out on me. He's punishing me. He loves her more than he loves me or I'd have what she has. Right? All these thoughts, even if they're... Only there, on a subconscious level, are the source of envy and jealousy. It comes from unbelief. And James goes right after this. It's amazing what he does. And I wish we had time to really dig into this, but we don't because this is more topical than it is dealing with this passage in detail. We'll come back to James one day. But if you look there, he says, What causes quarrels and fights? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, cannot obtain. So you fight. And quarrel, and then he goes right at this issue of unbelief when he says very simply, verse 2, you don't have because you don't ask. (laughs) James says, 
You're fighting with one another. You're killing one another. You're coveting all these things because you desire things you don't have and others have them. But all you need to do is ask. Because you have a Father in heaven who longs to do good to you. Ask him. Do you believe that you can ask him and he'll answer your prayers? And you might say, well, I've done that. I've tried that. I've asked God and God's not answered. So you feel you have good grounds for your lack of confidence in God coming through for you. Well, James has something to say about that too. He goes on. You you don't have because you don't ask. Okay? Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. And this is maybe where many of you are living. But here's what he says. Because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions and your lusts. So he said, if you ask God and he says no, see, direct, we immediately think, well, God's stingy. He's holding out on me. He doesn't love me. He loves others more than he does me or he'd hear me and he'd do what I'm asking him to do. No. See, James says, if you ask God and he says no, it's not because he's angry. It's because he's a father. And he loves you. And C.S. Lewis, so, I think it was so, I heard this this week. It was so helpful and so right to the point. C.S. Lewis said, in reality, we don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. Oh, see, you immediately know what that means, don't you? Right? And what does C.S. Lewis mean? See, fathers have to feel, fathers feel responsibility for their children. They have to shape and train these children. So they have, a father who can't say no is no father at all, but a grandfather who says no is no grandfather at all. Right? You know why children are spoiled, right? Because grandparents can't be spanked. You've heard that? If you don't have kids yet, hang in there. Just wait. My mom and dad would never do that, really. We want a grandfather in heaven. We want somebody who's just there and has this, what, what, what can I do for you today? Oh, you'd like to do this? Okay, well, just, we'll just go, right? We don't want a father who's committed to our, to our sanctification and our obedience, okay? And so all of this springs from God. God doesn't love me. He's out to get me. He's stingy. He won't come through for me. He's holding out on me. And it's all because we have these, these overriding epi desires that are driving our lives. And God is not just coming alongside with our agenda. He's challenging us. He's thwarting us. He's disciplining us. He's training us. He's doing all of these kinds of things. And let me say one last thing before we move on to the last point. And I want you to see the connection here between envy and idolatry really quick. Because see, what, 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 what James is describing is when we don't believe that God will come through for us, what we do is we begin to turn to other things and put our life in their hands. We find other gods who we think will serve us and give us life. The Bible calls these things idols. So, I mean, for my, my own personal life, for example, I can't trust God to give me what I want, so I look to money because money promises to keep me safe and give me the life I really want. So one of the things you learn here is you, if you want to know where your idols are, follow your envies. We envy in others the things we're looking to for life apart from God. So if money is the thing your heart is looking to for security and meaning. And if you don't have it, you'll hate and begrudge people who do. Right? If it's good friendships or a romantic relationship and you don't have it, here's what you'll do. I'm telling you, be, get, be, just be prepared for this. You'll go on Facebook. You see all these other people being friends and doing all this fun stuff together while you're stuck at home all alone. You'll be full of self-pity and envy and discontent. It's all driven by a dollar. So, lastly then, how do we go to war then? We get, we're problem solving, right? The issue's unbelief, driving us, the idolatry of our hearts driving us. So how do you go to war against envy? And here's the solution. The solution that this text would lead us to, that ultimately 
Paul leads us to in 1 Corinthians 13 is, if envy is, I see others rejoicing and I weep, I see them weeping and I rejoice, then turning that around, love then means putting your happiness in the happiness of the other person. Envy is pain by the other person's happiness. Love is putting my happiness into their happiness, right? Envy is happiness in others I see that threatens my happiness, but love is the opposite of envy. When I, when I love, I locate my happiness in the other person's happiness. I'm zealous for their happiness, not mine, for their enjoyment, for their joy, right? Not mine. Now, let me tell you, the place where I've learned this the most is in parenting four kids. This, this idea of what it means, to, you have no choice but to put your, you know, put your happiness in the happiness of others. And I've really learned it with my children, and it's in the little things. It's in the little moments. Not the big moments. It's in the little things like a bedtime story. And I was thinking about this week. We have literally, if you come to our house, we have literally hundreds of children's books in our house. But my six-year-old Sarah, it's been the same way with every one of my kids, but right now it's her. She has this one book that she likes to read, and I'm not kidding, every single night she wants to read this one book. We have 200 books. We want to read this one book, right? And it's been this way for a long time. Uh, there was a time where I actually hid the book and got a break for about three months. I'm not kidding. And she found it somehow, like, trapped, right? So every night I say, go pick out a book for us to read. And she picks out this one book, and I come into her room, and she has this big grin on her face because she knows, right? She knows I, I hate it. And I, I, I beg her, I beg her, please, can we read another book? I'm kind of tired of reading this book. And then it's Puppy Dog Eyes and that pathetic little girl's sad voice. And, of course, I give in. And so this is what we do every night. And we read the book, and it literally is painful, and it goes on forever, and there's no joy in it for me personally. And I know this makes me horrible, but it's how I feel. She loves it. She just loves it, right? She loves it. And I'm, I'm telling you, there's only one way, and this sounds so silly, but it's so true. There's only one way to get through those kinds of things, and that is for me to put my joy in her joy, right? Her smile and her giggles as we read, and it's God teaching me to love. So my favorite my favorite was a couple weeks ago, we were reading this book that I just really can't stand. And, uh, and I'm just struggling. I mean, I'm not happy about it. We're just about to the end. I am, you know, the, the end of the tunnel's in sight. And Abby, my eight-year-old, comes into the bedroom where I'm putting Sarah to bed. And she sees us reading. She says, Daddy, I love that book. Will you read it to me next? <laughs> right? And then I have to go from reading to my six-year-old into the next. I read it twice in one night. Right? <laughs> it's just, and that, that seems so silly. But it, is, but it is so much where the work of love takes place. And so how do we get the power? Oh, I've got to get to the end here. How do we get the power to put our happiness in the happiness of somebody else? Because it's so hard. How do you do it? How do you become so selfless that you don't live for your own happiness, but you tie your happiness to the happiness of others so tightly that if they're sad, you can't be happy? You have to be sad with them. And if, and if they're rejoicing, if your little girl is sitting next to you and she's giggling and she's laughing, there's no way, no matter how much you hate the book you're reading, that you can be sad. But you begin to rejoice with her. And the answer is you have to see the jealous God. So look down at verse 5 in James 4. You see what James says there? He's making an argument, and at the end of the argument he makes there, he says in verse 5, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And what James is teaching us there is that God, that God is jealous for us. The power to overcome envy and jealousy and instead to love comes from knowing God's jealous love for you. God is jealous for you. Isn't that a crazy notion? It's so confounding. 
that the scholars have had a hard time translating this phrase. And if you read from the NIV, for example, you'll notice it's translated a different way, but there will also be a footnote saying it could be translated as it is here in the ESV. So there it is. God's great desire is you. God has a yearning affection for you. And this idea of God's jealous love for us is not unique in this verse in James. James claims to be quoting scripture. It's funny, verse 5, but there's no direct quote from the Old Testament. So what scholars do is they say, well, this theme of God's jealousy for us, of God being a jealous God, is there in places like Exodus 34 and in the Ten Commandments. And it refers to God's wrath and his complete hatred of our sin, but at the same time, his love and his exclusive loyalty to us. Now, notice verse 4. Do you see how James casts sin? He says... In verse 4, it's very subtle, but you have to see it. You adulterous people. So James says when we sin, we don't just break God's rules. Sin's not just breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. Sin is spiritual adultery. And I've never, I, I, I've never experienced the pain of adultery firsthand. Some of you have. I can't imagine anything more painful. The exclusive love and loyalty within a marriage relationship being shattered And let me ask, what would it say about a marriage if there were adultery but no jealousy? What if there was adultery and then the offended party says, well, you know, it's no big deal, and they just went on as if nothing ever happened? You'd look at that and you'd say, that's not love. I mean, fierce, exclusive, covenant love is being defined, is, is, is by definition jealous love. And what the Bible wants us to see is just like an earthly husband or an earthly wife who has to deal with the infidelity and the adultery of their spouse, when we sin against God, we commit spiritual adultery, and it breaks his heart, and he is jealous because he loves us. Maybe the best, honestly, the best illustration, this is going to blow some of your mind, okay? Get ready to be just blown away. But uh, there's a movement in uh, in kind of reformed culture, a bunch of guys who are, who are coming into reformed theology and are beginning to, um, it's this rap culture within reformed circles, which is just amazing. And one guy in particular that I really like, his name's Shai Lin, and Shai Lin, uh, so I listen to rap music, yes. I mean, you're learning all kinds of weird things about me over the last few weeks, aren't you? I love zombie movies and I listen to rap music. Okay, Shai Lin, he, he did this, he did this, um, this CD of, of this compilation of songs and he just did different songs of the different attributes of God. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. And he did a song on God's jealousy. And here's a couple of lines from the song. I'm not going to try to rap them. I could call Ethan up to rap. That would be really cool. One day, we have, I have had, asked, I have had uh, somebody come and say, what, what if, what, could I rap in church sometimes? I, said, I don't think we're ready for that. But <laughs> maybe one day. Okay. <laughs> but here's how Shailen, it's a song called The Jealous One. He says, I couldn't think of much worse if I tried than a dude who smirks if you flirt with his bride. So tell me, what kind of God would he be if he wasn't bothered to see idolatry? Is God just supposed to laugh and withhold his wrath when he's replaced by a golden calf? You say, I don't worship a golden calf. Well, for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash, atrocious paths. We still don't know the half of how these things provoke his holy wrath. It's good. God yearns jealously for you and I, even as we yearn jealously for self and sex and cash and other golden calves. Do you see? God loves us. We are his great desire. We are his heart's treasure. He is jealous for us. And because he's jealous for us, we can trust his heart. 
Look at what James goes on to say in the next sentence, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Literally, he gives mega grace, mega gifts. God is generous. He's not stingy with his gifts. He loves us and is committed to providing bountifully for us. He's the father in the prodigal son story who's accused by his son of being closed-fisted. And do you remember... Do you remember in the story what the elder brother said? He said, I've slaved for you all these years. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never even gave me a goat that I might go and celebrate with my friends. And you remember the father's response. He looks at him and he says, son, all I have is yours. You want a goat? Take it. Take it all. It's all yours. The boy, see, could not have been more wrong about his father's heart towards him. And that's where all of his envy and his hatred for his younger brother came from. And so what the story would say to us is don't make the same mistake. The healing medicine for envy is to know God the father's heart towards you and to hear him say, son, daughter, all that I have is yours. And this is all made true once and for all in the coming of God into the world in Jesus Christ. Love is locating your happiness in the happiness of someone else. And that's exactly why God came in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals the heart of God for us. And it's the exact opposite of envy. God did not see our sadness and rejoice. He saw it and wept. And in his weeping, he came to rescue us. He did not, he, he did not begrudge the success and happiness of others. Jesus put his happiness in our happiness And that's why he went to the cross. See, when you begin to believe that God loves you and will take care of you, that he's jealous for you, then and only then will you be able, and James goes on, we didn't print verse 7, to say, submit yourself to God. Put yourself under his jealous love. Receive whatever comes from him and from his hand as his good gift to you. Submit to him. Don't believe for a second that he's holding out on you. There's something more, something better that he could give you, but he refuses to. That's unbelief. Do you see Jesus locating his happiness in your happiness all the way to the cross? That's the only thing that can destroy envy and create joy, contentment, and peace, and ultimately a life of love towards others, putting your happiness in their happiness, rejoicing with them in their triumphs and joys, weeping with them in their struggles and defeats. Love does not envy. Let's pray. Father, we openly confess to you how hard this is for us. How easy it is for us to see the successes and how others are honored and to be jealous and to feel pained by that because our pride and our ego are wounded. Because, truth be told, inside we are not full of the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We're empty and in our emptiness we're constantly looking for something to fill us up. And so I pray that as we come to this table now in the the last few moments of our service, that you would do just that, that you would meet us at this place, that you would fill our minds and our hearts with the love that you have for us, you putting your happiness in our happiness, Lord Jesus, all the way to the cross, and that it would fill us up in such a way that we could become people who would bear the fruit of love in the mission that you've given to us, in our, in our families, in our, in our marriages, towards our kids, towards our neighbors, towards one another in this church, towards our city, that we might bear fruit, that will glorify you. Come and uh, heal our unbelief at this table where we celebrate your great love for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.
Being forgiven your sins uh, makes you a person who's able to forgive others their sins. Being shown kindness makes you kind. Being jealously yearned over. And God in Christ putting his happiness in your happiness gives you the strength to go and to do the same thing. And that's the mission. And so the power for the mission is just contained in the promise of this benediction. This is God's good word, his benediction, right? His, his, his pronouncement of blessing and favor over your life that becomes the power source by which you go to love. And so receive the benediction then. Thank you for your patience this morning. I know the service went long, uh, but I'm grateful. So receive this, this, this promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.